Happy New Year, Cedar Home. How y'all doing? I have a great fun fact for you. Let's start off the new year, right? So the Ravens have not won a game in 2024. <laughs> but they are still the number one seed in the AFC. So, yeah, Super Bowl. The road to the Super Bowl runs through Baltimore. I did that for Keith, just so you know. That was for you. Let's open up our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that you've given us together to worship you, uh, to gather and open up the word, to hear the truth of your gospel and the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, and the, the magnitude of the ways in which your word describes who he is and what he has done. Lord, make this book live to us. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior and make the book live to us, Lord. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. If this is your first time joining us, you picked a really good time. And I don't mean just because it is the new year. I mean because today we are going to be opening up a brand new series entitled Little Church, Big Christ. Now, if you came to, to uh, the service last week, you might have gotten one of these booklets. How many of you got one of these booklets? Many of you did. Okay, well, if you didn't, there are still some available. You can go outside, you can grab one, and I encourage you to do that, okay? Uh, because what you can do is in 12 days, you can walk through the entire book of Colossians. You could have read it from start to finish. In fact, on the 13th day, you're going to be challenged to do just that, to read through it in 13 minutes and be able to go through the entire book. You will be blessed by it. The book itself is not power, right? The book is um, just working you through the Bible, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God. And it is a way in which in this new year, we can be committing to reading through God's word together. We can do that together. So whatever the pod of people that you're going to do that with, right? Your family, your spouse, your friends, whoever you commit to doing it, and whatever length you commit to doing it, I encourage you to do that. For example, if you had done that, by today, you would have already read through half of the book of Colossians, and you would be a lot more informed as we're going to be working through the themes of this book, right? Talking about from uh, an, a bird's eye view, the different things that we can be pulling out of Colossians. Those things are going to start popping out of you as you zoom out from scripture to the specific themes that can be read there. So please do that. Take advantage of that. The second thing I would love for you to take advantage of, it's going to be on January 21st. January 21st, we're going to read through the entire letter of Colossians after the service together. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. You know what that means? It means that Colossians is meant to be read out loud. It's meant to be read as a whole. So we're going to do that together. After the service is over, y'all go grab coffee, you come right back in here, and we're going to read through the entire letter together. And hopefully as we do that, we're going to start seeing these themes that we're going to talk about today. Now go ahead and turn in our text for the day uh, to the first two verses of Colossians. Go ahead and open up the book of Colossians. I'm going to read the first two verses to you. says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 
We know who Paul is, right? As you studied scripture, you'd be aware that uh, the Paul that we're talking about was once named Saul. On the road to Damascus, he was called by our Lord to be an apostle, right? Jesus said that he would reveal to Saul how much he had to suffer for Jesus's name's sake. And Paul lived that out, didn't he? He became the greatest missionary the world has ever known, and he spread the gospel. He started planting out churches, and his life actually ended in Rome, in obscurity, living out the things that he taught every day. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, that could be little a apostle, right? Just a messenger of the gospel, but we know it's probably not because he doesn't know these people. He's never met them before. So this is, a, this is a big A apostle. He's setting out his authority to be able to speak to the things that he's going to spell out in this letter. And we know that because the way he talks about Jesus, he calls him Christ Jesus, not Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. It's his title. It's who he is. So Paul is an apostle, big A, of Christ Jesus. And it's by the will of God. It's God's doing. He's not by himself. He's with Timothy, his brother. In other places, he calls Timothy his son. And so this family that God has forged for him out of nothing is with him as he's writing to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, these people who are set apart, right? It says they're faithful. It means that they are full of faith, or maybe it even means that they are loyal to Christ. Perhaps Paul is emphasizing something to us at the very beginning of this letter that he's going to be spelling out for the rest of it. And of course, we have the city, the origin of the place that he's speaking to, Colossae, which we're going to learn more about in a little bit. He ends his introduction by saying, grace to you. Grace is unmerited favor. Encompasses all that Paul has received in Christ, all that he hopes that the people that he's writing to have received in Christ, which actually results in what? In peace with God our Father. Peace in this life now that's experienced in the type of peace that a person feels when they belong to Christ in the midst of all the tumultuousness of the world around us, but ultimately, peace with the Father, reconciliation forever. Well, that's the exposition of the first two verses, and we could probably just end right there, couldn't we? The truth is, as we dive a little bit deeper into it, we might be reminded of some things. You know, it wasn't long ago that we went through the introduction to uh, Romans, right? Chapter 1, everybody remember that? Seven verses. Man, so meaty, Right? Paul barely even talked about himself. He spells out the gospel in such a beautiful way, some remarkable things he says about God through the lens of the gospel. In comparison, we look at Colossians. Man, so brief. Almost to the point where we might say the Colossians could feel a little snubbed. See, if we did a survey of all the letters, if we looked at all of the times that Paul introduced himself to different churches, what we'd realize is that this is actually, the introduction in Colossians, nearly identical to all of the other variations of introductions that he has, right? Usually, Paul does exactly what he did. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. It's by the will of God. I'm with whoever it is that I'm with at this moment, right? This is to the city that I'm writing to, grace and peace to you. Very standard. It's the norm. It's almost like Paul's saying, nothing to see here. But see, I think as we, as we take some time and look at this, 
we'd realize that the point is not to squeeze 40 minutes out of these first two verses. That we ought to take a look at the whole book as itself and really flush out some of the history, some of the cultural and biblical background regarding the book of Colossians as we walk through this text over the next 12 weeks and realize that this is a letter. This is the beginning of that letter from a real man meant to be read to real people who might be very different than you and I, but still share the same types of basic concerns that we have in this life today. They still possess the same Holy Spirit within them that are stirring their affections for God. So let's take some time today. Let's, let's see the shape of this letter as a whole, and let's commit to using that as the launching point as we get into this letter over the next three months. And we're going to do that by taking a look at a map. Maybe? Yeah. Oh, man, I love maps. They gave me a laser. Check this out. Isn't that cool? Yeah, okay, someone's excited. Hey, check this out. So this is Colossae, okay? This is Colossae. Um, the city right next to it is Laodicea. This is Herapolis. So this, this, um, this serves as a little triangle at the, the southeast, or the south, yeah, east end of the Lycus River, okay? The whole region is Asia. Now, now we know this isn't Asia. This is actually Turkey. But when it says Asia, it's talking about the Roman province of Asia. And it was about 100 miles from Ephesus, a much bigger city, and a city that would receive a letter that was very similar to the one that was given to Colossians. Thanks. <laughs> Do I sound that bad? <laughs> I love you. All right. <laughs> no promises. So as you take a look at the map there, you can orient yourself to where Colossae is. And I'd love you to take a look at how close it is to Laodicea and Herapolis. Colossae was a small town, okay? Uh, like I said, it was on the south side of the Lycus River. It's in the Roman province of Asia. Its nearest neighbors were Laodicea and Herapolis and... Both of those cities are named in the epistle. Both of those cities were larger and more significant than Colossae by the time that this letter was written. But the fact is that this region was controlled by others than the Roman Empire. See, when Paul wrote this, the Romans controlled this entire region, but before them, the Greeks did. And before them, the Persians did. And when the city was originally founded, Colossae was of considerable importance. Herodotus and Xenophon, two historians of a much earlier era, called Colossae at one point the great city of, of Phrygia, a populous city, wealthy and large. But see, what happened was the road system changed. You know, as the Romans were building all these Romes, they, they diverted traffic away from Colossae. And so Colossae experienced a decline in both social and commercial importance. Anybody seen the movie Cars? Pixar, are you thinking of that right now, right? The highway is built, okay, and all of the traffic is diverted away from this poor little town, and what happens? Tomato gets nice and rusty, okay? That's what's happened with Colossae, full of tomatoes. That's how we're going to remember it now. Oh, man. But see, 
that's not the only thing. That's not the only reason why Colossae was kind of regulated to a, a secondary tier by the time that Paul writes to them, because they had a problem. It was earthquakes. The whole region kept getting shattered by these earthquakes. A major seismic activity that historically we can read was destroying these cities at a time when you could not go to Arlington Hardware and Lumber and pick up everything that you need to be able to rebuild the city. And so in 60 AD, right around the time this letter was built, Colossae was devastated by an earthquake along with these two other cities. But you know what happened in Laodicea and Herapolis is the Romans paid to rebuild it. They didn't bother to do that with Colossae. It wasn't important enough. They had to fend for themselves. And so much of the city fell into ruin. By Paul's day, the once great city of Colossae was a shell of itself and only an insignificant market town well off the main highway. And so many biblical historians consider Colossians, this letter, to be a letter to the least important church or the, um, okay, rephrase, consider Colossians church to be the least important church to which any epistle of Paul has ever been addressed. Now, as fun as all of these facts are, and I know you just had a really good time, as fun as all these facts are, church, I want you to hold on to them because you know they're going to come up again, okay? Think about what we just said. Now, let's pivot our attention. Let's talk about the purpose of why Paul wrote Colossians. Most biblical scholars believe that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians towards the end of his ministry around 62 AD. And so this date therefore assumes that when Paul is talking about imprisonment in this letter, he is referring to the multiple Roman imprisonments spoken to in Acts chapter 27 and 28, and then which ultimately lead to his death according to church tradition. So Paul's in Rome. He's imprisoned. According to chapter 2, verse 1, he's writing to a, a group of people that he's never seen face to face. And the truth is that doesn't really give us much to work with in terms of purpose. For the complicating our search is the fact that Colossians does not possess specific events or peoples that Paul is primarily writing to teach or to correct or to reprove. It's very particular about that because he does kind of allude to Philemon, doesn't he? He talks about Onesimus. He gives other names specifically, but the truth is he's not really calling anyone out like he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. No specific sin that's being spoken to like Alexander the coppersmith in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. In fact... You might conclude that Paul is just writing to a church that he's never met before, and he's heard of them, and he wants to introduce himself, and that's the end of it. But there are some clues, and this is why we read the whole letter as a whole. This is why we study it so intensely. There are some clues within the text that are going to help us determine the purpose of this letter. Paul might not be as obvious in Colossians as he is in Galatians or Corinthians, but he does give us clues, so let's try and find those together. It's going to be fun. It'll be like a little search. This is the first clue. After introducing himself to Timothy and informing the church that he's been praying for them, Paul intentionally uh, creates a connection between himself and a man named Epaphras. In verse or chapter one, verses seven and eight. This is what he says. The gospel which has come to you, 
as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. You know, from this, we can understand that Paul has heard of Epaphras, of this man who he, he's, he's alluding to being the original evangelist, right? The ancient church planter in Colossae who taught them all the gospel. But see, not only that, we know that Paul must have heard from Epaphras as well, being told by him of all of the good things that are happening in Colossae. That's our first clue. Second clue we receive is actually at the end of the letter. Surprise, we find out Epaphras is with Paul now. And not only are he and Epaphras together, but they have been talking about specifics in the church at Colossae. This is chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Hierapolis. So now the plot thickens because now we know that Epaphras is, what he says is, is he's struggling in his prayers concerning or concerned that the church would be mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so something must be a little bit off, right? Something must be off for Epaphras to be concerned about the spiritual maturity of the church. And so now with those critical pieces of information, let's piece together our third clue by looking at some of the indications that Paul has been giving us all along as to his purpose. In, cha in chapter one, verse nine, he says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. In chapter 1, verse 29, or 28 and 29, he says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all that are in Laodicea and for all the people I haven't seen face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus in the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, 
and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, there's a lot there to digest. I just threw a lot at you. But hopefully you caught a few things, church. See, Paul is concerned that the church would be filled with the knowledge and the wisdom of God, and that it would be in Christ so as to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. With the objective being, at the end of it all, that Paul might present everyone mature in Christ. As much as there's been great success reported in Colossae, as much as that, that news has reached him, there apparently is some type of influence in the church, either from within or outside of it, that is seeking to delude the church with plausible arguments. Chapter 2 speaks to these explicitly. He says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elements and spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. In verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And then in verses 20 and 23, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they were used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But there are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And you factor all those things together, and a purpose becomes very clear. This is important, so it might be one of those things you ought to write down. The purpose of Colossians is Christian maturity. Christian maturity. In fact, in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, he says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul is giving us a statement when he says that. He's saying, I heard from Epaphras. He speaks well of the church and the work that's happening there, but he also claims that there are voices in and around the church and they're rising up and they're confusing people about who you are and why you exist. And I have sought in prayer on your behalf, your true Christian maturity, that it would be grounded in Christ, which we hope for in everyone, but which we are specifically writing and praying to produce in you as you listen to this letter. Now, does that make sense, church? Come on, give me an amen or something. Thank you. It has to make sense because this is a really big deal. As we work through this letter for three months, this is a really big deal. We need to understand the reason why Paul is writing Colossians so that we can see the value that it brings even 2,000 years later to our church here in Stanwood. Paul desires that all would be mature, not just saved, not just baseline, not just squeaking across the finish line or checking off the blocks, one foot in, one foot out, seeing how things are going to go, hedging our bets. No, 100% 
all the way, above and beyond, striving for the mark, never going to quit. Mature, growing, living, spreading in Christ. So at the end of this season, what we're going to hope to do is we're studying this letter together. And in our homes, right? That's why this booklet's going to be so cool. In our homes, as we're studying this together, let's pray that this would produce in us an understanding of what maturity in Christ looks like in opposition to the powers of this world and grounded in the person of Jesus for his glory, for the good of his people. And to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three themes today, okay? And if you write these down, what, what it's going to do is as we're getting into the nitty-gritty and we're really zooming into some of these verses and we're looking at the Greek and we're doing all sorts of nerdy stuff together, it's going to be so much fun. But the truth is, as we do that, you look at these themes overarching and it's going to draw you back to the bigger truth that you should have seen the whole time. So that when we read that letter from start to finish together, it's going to jump out at you. All the details are going to support those truths, okay? Don't miss the forest for the trees. Here's the first theme. The first theme we will discover as we look through the book of Colossians is the essence of Christian maturity is seeing a very big Jesus. Okay? The essence of Christian maturity is seeing a very big Jesus. Write that down. Siri, what does essence mean? <laughs> that was a joke, guys. I'd, I already wrote it down. I just thought, you know, we got a thing going on here, so this is pretty fun. Essence means a property or a group of properties of something without which it would not exist or be what it is. It is the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something, especially something abstract that determines its character. And so, what are we generally supposing in saying that the essence of Christian maturity is seeing a big Jesus? Well, it's our hope at the end of this study that you will understand <clears throat> that without seeing Jesus big, right? Jesus who Paul and who John and who Peter and who James and who all of Scripture testifies as the Christ— the Messiah, that Jesus, without seeing him as infinitely big, there will be no Christian maturity in your life according to Scripture. Now hear me. You will fail to accomplish your reason for existing if Jesus is not the biggest thing in your life before sin, before food or sex or pleasure, yes, but here, before your job, before your friends, before your church, before your family, before your life. Jesus is all, and he is in all, and he is through all, absolutely supreme. Colossians, this book, 
One of the reasons why it's just, it's so amazing, why, why, why people tend to flock to it when they want to understand who Jesus is, is Colossians proclaims the absolute supremacy and the sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ. One commentator says uh, Paul's full-length portrait of Jesus is on display in Colossians. That should pique our interest. You know, we've said it a couple of times, Colossians uniquely describes Jesus in several ways, but, <coughs> excuse me, but overall, perhaps more than any other letter, Jesus is uh, particularly described in 16 different ways, and, and we're going to talk about them right now. This is really fun. I wish it was up here on the screen. If you're lucky, maybe I'll, I'll give this to you after the service if you come up to me at a, at a distance. <laughs> He's God's son. He's the object of Christian's faith. He is the redeemer. He is the image of God. He's the Lord of creation. He's the head of the church. He's the reconciler of the universe. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. Under him, every power and authority in the universe is subjected. He is the essence of the mystery of God. And in him, all God's treasures of wisdom and knowledge lie hidden. He's the standard by which all religious teaching is to be measured. And he is the reality of the truth foreshadowed by the regulations and the rituals of the old covenant. By his cross, he conquered the cosmic powers of evil. And following his resurrection, he was enthroned at the right hand of God. And finally, our life now lies hidden with God and Christ. But one day, both he and we will be gloriously manifested all because of what he has done. <sighs> That's the good stuff. Why is it that we hear so much about Jesus in this book as opposed to some of Paul's other letters? You know, hopefully what this letter will produce in you is an understanding that there is no Christian maturity without seeing that Jesus is a big deal, the biggest deal. Paul makes that clear in this letter. In verse uh, 2, verse 19, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on heaven or in, or when, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He's the fullness of God. You know, we just read it last week in John chapter one. He said, for from his fullness, Jesus is, we have received grace heaped upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. Church, there are infinite examples if we are willing to see them in Scripture. Every biblical author gets this. All of them see this. They, they understand who Jesus is. They read his words. They understand his teachings. They submit to his rulership as king. They worship him as God. And then they grow and mature into the purpose that God has for them. And so if you're in this room today 
and you are living a Christian life that is not grounded in your love and desire for Jesus, your worship of Jesus, your study and devotion to the words of Jesus, if you have confidence in anything other than who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, then I am sorry. You are not living a Christian life. You need to repent and you need to believe in the gospel. The essence of Christian maturity is seeing a very big Jesus church. And we're going to study that a lot. So that's the first theme. The second theme is this. There are obstacles to Christian maturity that still exist today. Fair enough. There are obstacles to Christian maturity that still exist today. Now, I know that might be obvious to some people in this room, but the truth is, Many of us do not live lives as though this is a true fact. You know, not only do we ignore many of the obstacles that are strangling our Christian growth and maturity, but we might even be embracing some of them actively in our lives today. And so this book can help us. It can help us identify where those blind spots are and apply it to our lives. You know, we discussed that the immediate occasion of the writing of Colossians was the arrival of Epaphras in Rome. He's giving Paul this good report, but then he gives him potentially disturbing news about the presence of these heretical teachings in Colossae that were threatening the well-being of the church. Now, it's not 100% clear what these heretical teachings were. We're going to get into the details of some of them. We'll have a, a broad picture of what they are, but see, we get a very different picture than, let's say, Galatians or uh, Thessalonians, Corinthians, or Philippians, where specific people are name-dropped, right? Specific problems are called out. Circumcision is the problem. We're going to talk about circumcision, right? Not in Colossians. No. But based on what he does say, we can make an informed guess. Here's the first. First guess we can make is that there existed a group that had an assist insistence on legalism, ritualism, and the observance of holy days, which, which really points to a Jewish element. Totally makes sense based on history, based on the Bible, right? There were huge Jewish populations in pretty much every city in Eastern Roman Empire. There were 45,000 Jews present in Rome at the time when Paul wrote. And we know that on multiple occasions, uh, Paul was at odds with these groups of Jewish Christians who were insisting on legal requirements in addition to the grace and salvation in Jesus Christ, in subservience to the grace and salvation found in Jesus Christ. And so it is very possible that there were voices in the church at this time that were putting additional requirements on young Christians that was creating a lot of confusion. Does legalism exist in the church today? It does. We can learn from this. Second, there existed a group that spread the heresy of philosophical uh, character, right? The worship of angels, mystical practices, and perhaps aesthetic tendencies, which pointed to some type of pagan element, Right? They were Romans and they were Greeks. They, they came from, from the pagan pantheon and all the traditions therein. 
This would account for Paul's language in chapter 3 when he says the ways in which you once walked. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so in truth, some people were having a hard time putting away their culture. They were having a hard time putting away their old practices of the Mesopotamians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Americans. I'm sorry, not the Americans. <laughs> Regarding the food they ate, or the calendars they kept, or the parties they went to, the people they hanged out with, or the social and political voices that they were prone to listening to. And these influences were continuing to dictate how they lived their lives, even how they chose to participate in the church. Is there a cultural element to the pressures that we face in the church today? We can learn from the book of Colossians. You know, finally, there existed this um, Christian element in Colossians that was perhaps the worst heresy. While it at heart was some type of syncretic combination of both Judaism and paganism, it wore the mask of Christianity. It pretended to be Christian. See, it did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. It gave Christ a place, but it was not the supreme place. This Christian facade made the Colossians um, heresy all the more dangerous. And so for some in the church, their first allegiance was not to Christ. Listen, church, I, I hope I'm not being too obvious in drawing these connections between the Colossians and the 21st century Western church context. I'm not trying to be the Holy Spirit to anyone, but seriously, as we look through these heresies, could we not be praying to the Lord, Lord, reveal the idols of my own heart? Lord, where is Jesus not the biggest in my life? This is what Alistair Begg said. He said, you talk to the average person, say, he said it in a Scottish accent. It's way better than this. You talk to the average person, say, um, what do you think Jesus came to do? Well, I think he came to make me happy. I think he came to make me good. I think he came to make me feel good about myself. All kinds of answers might be given to that question. You need to go to the New Testament to find out exactly what it is Jesus came to do. He says, I am king, and I command you to bow down underneath my authority, and I will accept nothing other than 100% allegiance to me. Jesus came to rescue a people, and the people he came to rescue, he came to rule. So as we enter into this next season, we're going to get a picture of the many distractions that the church faced in Colossae. Yes, they struggled with legalism, and they struggled with the influences of their culture, and they struggled to put Jesus first. And so when we lay all our cards out on the table, we may see how this letter could help us in this season. We can ask ourselves, where are we distracted? Where is Jesus not big? And the Holy Spirit might give us the answer to those questions. The final theme is this one, and we will discover it as we look both at the letter itself, but then at all those fun facts we talked about at the very beginning of our time together. Do you remember them? 
we're going to discover life is not about us, and it's not about the church. Life is about Jesus. Life is not about us, and it's not about the church. Life is about Jesus. Now, friends, I know that sounds a little bit redundant, but as we're putting all of the elements of the things that we've learned about together today during our time, this is a point worth driving home. Truth be told, I, I really struggled with the wording um, of this particular point because I wanted it to be something that you could write down and you could take home and you could really discuss it with your families and chew on it a little bit. The reason I settled on life is not about us. It is or life is not about the church, life is about Jesus, is because the circumstance of the book of Colossians seems to be screaming that point at us. Consider the circumstances of Colossians. Let's, let's walk through it together. See, Colossians will include some of the most unique descriptions of the gospel. We said it's a, a big, full-length portrait of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on display. And so by the end of the letter, Paul will have singled out these 16 different ways, and he's going to show us that knowing who Jesus is must happen before we can achieve Christian maturity as a person and as a church. That's a big deal, wouldn't you say? But now keep in mind that Paul had never met any of these people in Colossae as far as we know. And on top of that, the historical evidence tells us that Colossae was devastated by an earthquake and the Romans chose to build all the cities surrounding it and they ignored the Colossians. And the city was fallen into ruin. Church, we can't find the church in Colossae anymore. There's no archaeological evidence of anything we talked about today. It has completely disappeared off the map. The lesson in this book is not that you hear the letter and great things follow and the church becomes grand and big and wonderful and influential and changes the world and becomes rooted you do all the things, and the great blessings of God come from it. That's not the lesson of Colossians. The historical evidence paints an entirely different picture for us. Ask yourself, with a message as important and unique as Colossians, why would Paul choose to send the letter to a little, unimportant, and ruined city of Colossae? Why not choose Laodicea? Or Heropolis. Paul's at the end of his life. He's got a chance to think about his legacy. Maybe he even has to choose which letters are going to go out, right? The Romans are looking through all his stuff, and he's got to figure out what letters need to go out. Why does this little speck on the map get one of the greatest letters about Jesus that has ever been written? You know, he tells the church, in chapter 4, verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, read it to the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from the Laodiceans. But he says, you get the letter first before them. Little Colossae, little church. Why? You know, I think the answer is that Jesus is bigger 
than any one church. Jesus is bigger than any one person. And the message of the gospel and how it changes our lives individually and as a church is so much more important than how we define what success looks like as a church or where we think it should go or even if that church should exist for the next 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 years. Colossae may not have been the biggest church. They may not have been located in the most important city. And it may not have been long after they had received this letter that the city ceased to exist. But the testimony of the letter to the Colossians was a timeless message that Paul knew was vital to the Colossians and to to everyone that the Colossians were able to reach so long as God determined they would do that. Jesus is bigger than the church. He's bigger than us. And when we know that, whatever our plans are, we fit them into his plans. Whatever our desires are, they seek after his desires first. Whatever my life will be, whatever my family's life will be, it will reflect the life that he lived. And in the end, my reward will be Jesus. Little church. Big Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day that we get to come together and we get to worship you. Lord, thank you for your life, Jesus. Thank you for the the testimony of your words. Thank you for the perfection of God that is mirrored in all of your actions, that you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God, as we dive into the truths of this letter, as we commit ourselves over the next three months to seeing a big picture of who your son Jesus is, would you, would you stir our affections for you? Would you reveal the ways in which we have, we have idols, we have traditions that are the most important thing in our life, or we have cultural nuances that have become the most important, or maybe we have simply put you, Jesus, on the back seat of whatever our lives' plans have in store. Lord, tear that down. Would you allow us to be a church that submits fully to your will, that sees you as the king that you are, that would seek to carry out your commission by making disciples of you wherever you call us to, grounded in the gospel that we know in our hearts and that, that, that drives us, God, both to love you with all of our hearts and to seek after the lost and fallen world in your name for your glory and for the good of your church. Lord, let us be a little church. But Lord, would you be the biggest thing in our lives Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for this time that we have had together. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.